This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Before we start off with the panel, just a quick context uh, for our viewers. Uh, at Media Rumble, each year we uh, bring together journalists, author, policy makers uh, to primarily discuss the future and challenges we're seeing in the space of news, uh, tech and policy. Uh, last year, we did do a session on intermediary liability, but the idea this year is to sort of delve deeper into subjects of platform accountability and uh, online speech governance. Uh, and this is primarily keeping in the developments we have had in India in the last one years. So we have we now have the new IT rules uh, that sort of governs the entire digital media landscape, including both platform and news. Uh, we have had the government sparring with the platforms over content takedown. And of course, uh, we have the growing uh, online hate and misinformation. So, uh, uh, Matije, let me start off with you. Uh, last year, I remember there was a, a profile that came in New Yorker, which was about you and, uh, and your work. Uh, I think you were speaking at a tech uh, conference and uh, you were going right after Eric Schmidt, who's the former Google CEO. And of course, he talked about uh, the ethics of AI and how much potential AI has. And when you sort of went up, uh, you ended up reading out uh, the ethics statement uh, of the AI uh, ethics committee of China. So be essentially puncturing how much is the gap between uh, often what companies uh, say and what the reality is. I think we can use the same kind of characterization uh, to a lot of ways for platforms of big tech companies also, wherein a lot of times they say they're connecting the world, they're bringing the world closer, but the reality is uh, a lot more difficult, uh, especially if you see uh, in the context of online speech, right, uh, where the idea is to bring communities together but now there is research and report to sort of show that how uh, content on platforms and platforms increasingly make us more angry and more divisive. So why do you think uh, that there is gap or do you think it's just a lie or a PR exercise? First of all, thank you for having me. Um, the point at that meeting at Stanford, it was actually two days before I would start my new job there, was to say that ethics, um, statements of intent often sound great. And the, I illustrated that by reading out uh, China's ethics principles because they actually sound great. And if you don't look at the context and if you don't look at the fact that there is no rule of law and that human rights are not respected and that there's not redress mechanisms and that there's actually not binding consequences to such articulations, uh, then you know, you you miss the opportunity of having real accountability and real standards. And that is what I think we need. And so in no sector, not in the automobile industry, not in the food and, and uh, beverages uh, sector, not when it comes to climate change and CO2 reduction, not when it comes to pharma and the solutions to COVID-19, have I ever seen, not as a member of European Parliament for 10 years, a industry, a group of companies like the advertising platforms, the social media companies are now that are so un and under regulated. And I've never seen an industry where it's accepted that companies set their own rules, just declare them and are left to their own devices to uh, to execute. 
So to make a long story short, I think declarations and uh, statements of intent and uh, responses like the ones we've seen from Nick Clegg to the uh, very good reporting of the Wall Street Journal last week do not cover it. We need to have clear rules that are binding, that are enforced, and that apply to everyone. And it is about time that social media companies and, and tech giants are held to the same standards and to the same account that other companies have. Okay, I'll, I'll come back, I'll circle back on the regulatory aspect, uh, but Alex coming to you and picking up the Wall Street Journal's brilliant reporting on uh, uh, Facebook. Uh, one of the issues and how I see it as most of these platforms and the products and services uh, that they sort of make, they're optimized for engagement, they're optimized for time spent. They're not really optimized to sort of make say like a safe space where misinformation and online hate is not incentivized. Do you think that is really the crux of the problem that these platforms are sort of designed for network effect to sort of evoke reactions out of people, uh, make something viral? So that's why online safety, security, something that is not really baked into the system. Is that really the core problem behind platforms failure uh, to sort of govern online speech? Oh, look, it's a real mess. And so actually you cited two different metrics that uh, you said they optimize for, and they're two different metrics. So the first one you mentioned was time spent. And the second one you mentioned is engagement. And actually what happened a couple of years ago is Facebook went from optimizing for time spent and moved to optimize for engagement, even though they knew that there would be less time spent on the platform. Now, here's an amazing thing that happened. In both situations, it was a total mess and the platform just couldn't control what was going on there. So I think there's an element of this that, um, you know, Facebook is right now 2.7 billion users uh, and, and may just be too big for one company to try to rein in. Um, it, it's a, a tremendous amount of speech that shows up on the platform every day and whatever rules that you set, bad actors seem to have a chance to, um, seem to have a chance or, or, or a knack for figuring out how to exploit them and turn the platform toxic. Uh, I, I think that um, this has to start. So, so I guess to underscore what, what the whole point, it's, it's up to Facebook to decide what's more important, the health of society or its business imperatives. So what would be the fix? Uh, we could look at ways that they optimize their feed. Uh, but I think it all begins with culture. It's something I spoke about in my book. It's something I spoke about recently on Big Technology Podcast with Jeff Horowitz, who was the Wall Street Journal reporter that broke the story, and Brian Boland, who used to be an executive inside the company and is now speaking out against some of its practices. And the problem with Facebook right now is that the culture optimizes for growth. If you're a product manager inside Facebook, you're evaluated based off of how you grew the product. And a product is evaluated based off of how much it's grown. So what you have happen is that products that don't grow to the Facebook standard are shut down and product managers that don't grow their products end up you know, not meeting the requirements uh, for performance evaluations and they don't get bonuses and they don't get raises. And if Facebook wants to be a good actor in society, it has to begin by fixing its culture and thinking, is it the best way for us to do business to incentivize the people that work for us based off of growth? Because the minute that you do that, what you end up having is product managers who are really uh, motivated to get their bonus. And the way they'll do that is take shortcuts and build products that don't serve the common good 
and that put growth above all. And I think if Facebook addresses that, it'll be well on its way to fixing a lot of its bigger problems. Uh, but until it gets there, it will will be you know moving the op optimization from one category to the to another, running around in circles and not fixing any problems at all. Correct. But just to follow up, Alex, do you think growth and safety are like sort of polar opposites? Because the one the the change that you did talk about basically the change was marketed as uh, prioritizing friends and family content on Facebook. What it did end up doing was that it incentivized uh, a certain kind of content, like negative content, one that would uh, make people uh, a lot more angry. Uh, so do you think these are two very different goals for a company? Whereas, so for example, A, if you optimize for growth, it's not really good for the larger platform or the community on the platform. If mm. you optimize for that, you will not have the growth. You might like lose out to a certain audience. So do you think that that inherently the clash is sort of inbuilt, so that's why it's more challenging for the platform? Well, let, let's empathize with Facebook for just a minute. Uh, if, in social media, it's a zero-sum game. It's all about how, you know, do you have users on your platform at any given minute of the day or do you not? And it's Facebook, but it's also YouTube and it's also TikTok. And they know that if they don't work hard to optimize to get people on the platform, they're going to quickly lose out to these other companies. And they believe that they're more virtuous than the others for, you know, whether that's merited or not. And they'd rather have people on Facebook. So now that we've said that, uh, I, I do think the way that they're going about this is completely wrong. Um, I think that you can grow and you can be good for society. They don't necessarily uh, need to be at odds. But if you put growth as the North Star above all, you're finished. Like you're never going to accomplish those safety goals. So it's all about, if social media is all about growing, I think we should add a caveat or another uh, element to it, which is, is that it should be about growing safely and growing you know, sustainably versus uh, you know, growing in a way uh, that's going to just leave society in a lurch. There's a way to do it. Facebook knows the right way to do it. I mean, they're, they're pretty smart over there. I've been in the offices a bunch. They understand what they're doing. And so I think that if you do start to incentivize uh, growing health in a way that's healthy to society, you don't give up, you don't give up the goal of growing completely. Then, you, then you're saying, I lost. Uh, but, but you do say we have to have other factors in the way that we do business other than simply growing the products. And I think that's totally feasible. And I think that's why the leakers went to the Wall Street Journal, because they believed that Facebook had potential to be good for society if it didn't go overboard on growth. And the question is whether the people inside the company have the will to do that. And maybe we can discuss it, but so far it doesn't seem like they do. So I, I, what I hear is the common good sort of needs to be baked into the system. Uh, uh, Mishi, coming to you again, so like something like what Wall Street Journal did, it won't happen in India. I guess that's a big reason why uh, platforms still don't face a lot of uh, scrutiny. But just if you see the sheer numbers, uh, so for example, a, most of platforms, uh, attempts, so or teams, it's most primarily in English or maybe a couple of more languages. So A, whatever platforms are doing, it's primarily for US. So even if they remove content for misinformation or they sort of make changes that can sort of read into the language or whatever content, it's primarily for English. So A, even though if for a country like India or Brazil, which are quite important big markets for all these platforms, as far as 
cleaning up the mess is concerned, these markets are very lower down the ladder for these companies. Because a, again, language is a barrier, but there are other uh, challenges also. Just the sheer fact that there are no reporting that can make the big tech or the companies or the platforms accountable to that. That is one. And the second thing is, since you are in India and you, uh, you, are, you are a lawyer also, uh, what I see, there is, of course, a growing clamor for regulating big tech uh, and, and governing uh, platforms. But I also see that there are two things at odd, right? Because essentially you would want platforms or these companies to follow whatever the local law is. But you also want them to say, uh, uh, uphold human rights, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, especially, uh, but in a lot of cases, these two things can be odd. I was just reading, in fact, uh, Casey Newton has written a newsletter today where he's talked about how in Russia, one of the apps, uh, 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 which is essentially uh, about voting information about Putin's opponent has been taken down uh, by Google or App Store. So A, how do you basically see that even though with markets like India and Brazil that are so important for platform and companies, they rank very low when it comes to cleaning up efforts, and B, how do you see this dichotomy of that we expect platforms to follow local rules, but sometimes following those local rules might infringe on the very same rights that they're supposed to uphold? Um, thank you. Um, so my work does span between two of the largest democracies, both of whom love beating their chest and pretending to be actually being the bastions of free speech and expression or democratic values. Um, I would say that the technology package which is sweeping the human race, consisting of smartphone and social media companies, is peddling a form of convenience that we've all bought into. And the convenience ensures that um, a form of inhuman social control, which is antithetical to the idea of individual human rights and democratic self-governance gets established. Now, root of the problem, I think the earlier panelists already talked about, is the business model of the convenience services. They sell people to advertisers, no matter what legal jargon you wrap it into. And uh, the value in digital advertising lies in collecting information about people's behavior. So if there's behavior collection on a scale which was previously unimagined in the history of humankind, so gram for gram, the smartphone is the densest collection of sensors ever assembled and is a spy satellite in your pocket aimed at you. Whether you're open-minded or strongly inclined to the value system of your immediate social group, introverted, outgoing, or whatever, uh, these are the factors where, uh, of personality that can be derived from the trail you leave behind on social media. Now, it, in, in these, or the platforms we've been talking to, whichever names you say, I think it's not so much about the companies, but it is about the technical and social structure that is privileging engagement of any deliberation or thinking. Other than Wikimedia, I don't see any other, um, any other platform which is not watching us watching everything all the time. And uh, that is the only place which encourages some deliberation. Everyone else re awards and rewards reaction. Now, um, it is true when, when the platforms were actually growing their businesses in the United States, they were given the safe harbor protection and um, First Amendment, which is the US value, 
was supposed to be this big thing, like every other place, whether it's um, uh, the good war or the bad war, they were going to bring the democratic values to the rest of the world. So it was the very American thing, which I do believe in. As an American lawyer, I do believe in the First Amendment quite a lot. But as an Indian, I also am very much aware of the fact that First Amendment are the reasonable restrictions on free speech and expression in the Indian constitution. I think a lot of us thought, yes, this is great. This is democratizing the way everybody else speaks. It's no longer gatekeeping by some large player. So we all loved it. Now, then, of course, came the weaponization. The weaponization started happening in India much before the 2014 elections. And uh, But obviously, India is a small country, only 1.25 billion people. And it doesn't have the same economic um, wherewithal of a United States, China, or European Union. Um, now, China, Russia, they're all in one category. Then there's European Union, which has a lot of might and is doing a lot with regulation. Uh, but they have actually no economic clout in the sense of businesses. There are no European businesses which are coming. You hear a lot about good regulation, whether it's on privacy, whether it's in content moderation, and they're doing a great job. But where are the European Googles or Facebooks one doesn't see? So one ends up looking at uh, the American companies doing what they are doing right now. Because in, the, in countries like ours, the weaponization was happening, a lot of people were already calling attention. Nobody was paying much attention until the 2016 Trump elections happened. And then, of course, all, all hell breaks loose and everybody wants to pay attention to it. I think you're rightly pointing out the conundrum as a user, which I would feel as a representative of a user is like, hey, my government actually does not let me speak. My government comes very heavily upon not only me as an individual, but also wants to do censorship by proxy when a Facebook or a Twitter facilitates my speech or um, and wants to come down against these people. So I like these platforms, but these platforms also have a ton of their problems. Um, and then there is my government. Um, uh, and if when these platforms have the problems, whether it is misinformation or the various revelations which are happening about this or, or the violence, the online uh, violence, which translates into offline violence, where do we go? We can only go to our own regulators. So I think users in our countries are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They like these platforms and they have these governments who pretend ostensibly to actually come up with regulations to do, oh, we want to check misinformation, we want to check disinformation. Then, um, if we were actually to trace where this misinformation and disinformation is coming, it is it can be traced back to the IT cells or the political parties themselves to a very large extent in many of these countries. So we are stuck. Do we want regulation? We don't want regulation. And ostensibly, the regulations are being used to tell us, hey, we are coming. It's, it's like women. You know, every time they tell us, we want to protect women. They never want to empower women. But everybody wants to make laws to protect women. It's the same thing. We want to protect users from misinformation and disinformation. Um, that's why we are coming up with laws like these. The laws which you just talked about, and News Laundry has uh, challenged it also as part, part of these IT rules in mm -hmm. India, at least we've talked about. There's no definitional clarity. It's just, again, using censorship by proxy. They're trying to break encryption no matter what the noises they are make, making out there. So, um, and this is the same thing which we uh, had already fought this battle in from 2011 to 2015 in the Supreme Court. So, if, if you're asking, are there problems on these platforms? Yes, there are a ton of problems. They're also 
um, they are they've become powerful enough that um, the growing menace or the foreign election interference access or the assistance to law enforcement agencies or the rampant harassment or abuse of women all of that exists we've seen both the impact on teenagers etc but i think all of us just assume as if life cannot exist without such platforms they're only 5000 days old 10 years ago they didn't exist it's only 5000 years so in the scope of human history they're not um, uh, indispensable and this is not the internet we all we envisioned or wanted so i would say yes it's a difficult position for people in some part of the world but i will also say that we are an important market there is a there is a reason that facebook and google are investing in reliance geo and it's not the other way around so we are such an important market but we don't have the same voice and that's not anything to do about for now language speakers or the users it's just the old traditional methods of the us speaks and european union speaks and then china speaks to some extent and russia iran don't matter and rest all of us are bundled together Uh, as if we were all the same okay uh julian you uh, if you can just weigh in on the same question i asked to mishi but just picking on what mishi also mentioned if you just look at most of the laws that have come so brazil has a law i think singapore most of these laws are essentially they say they look into misinformation and all but there is a growing criticism that a most of these law infringe upon user privacy and when like given to governments that have authoritarian tendencies they can in, in fact effectively be used against users or consumers so because you like uh, analyze these regulatory frameworks also if you could just weigh in on the conundrum wherein we want platforms to obey lo- local laws but sometimes just the sheer fact of obeying those lo- laws infringing on those rights and if you can just comment on these laws that are that are being drafted in the name of uh uh governing or uh, monitoring online speech but the main attempt and it's a tool that if it it's, if it ends up in the wrong hand uh, it can be quite powerful and dangerous yeah sure uh, also from my side thanks for having me i've just been listening to, and i think there's like some excellent point already uh, points already made and i can try to connect your question also to to what the other speaker said because to me it comes down to a question of power of, over who gets to regulate speech is a question of power like mishi mentioned for you know for, for for decades for centuries it was clear that you know you had powerful newspaper editors or owners or tv station owners that had a say in what people talked about or how the political or the, uh, social discussion was and you know it was already problematic back then because you know there's also some sort of concentration and maybe some some manipulation um but i would also agree with what everyone else said you know mishi said mariji said it alex said it as well or alluded to it you know it was it was less concentrated it was it was less personalized it was not based on all this personal data on all this um, behavioral uh, data it didn't have this uh, undeniable growth factor as the north star as as alex said and then uh, you know as mishi said 10 years ago then social media comes along the assumption is okay now people get to decide what everyone talks about and everyone has a say and it's still though platforms and 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 politicians that exert a lot of control and i think the examples that came up um uh, show that i mean the the recent examples for platform power is the facebook files that were mentioned a couple of times where journalists 
from the Wall Street Journal, but then also later from the New York Times, they re revealed flaws in, in the content moderation and revealed that maybe the CEO even wants to push positive story through the Facebook news feed. And Freedom House recently came out with a report uh, saying that governments also prohibit speech on the platform. So you, you still have the same uh, powerful, uh, a, a few powerful people, mostly men, um, that get to decide who who gets to say what and and how our, our news and information spaces online are structured. And I think that's the key question. It's the key question of power. And so now to your question about the laws, I think this is kind of the attempt to wrestle some of the power away from the platforms into the democratic pluralistic field. Um, but the downside to that is, as you very correctly, I think, pointed out, is you can also have that power wrestled away from platforms to author authoritarian governments or to unaccountable agencies, regulators, people. And that's the question. And unfortunately, I don't have a, a clear answer how to get out of that conundrum either. I think my, my best attempt at, at, at giving you this answer of, of how you call it like the dichotomy between following the local laws and, and following human rights is have as best as you can have an, have an independent uh, agency, um, government, ministry, body that can oversee these platforms based on laws and rules that have been made in a democratic process, um, taking in pluralistic views, taking in experts from many different fields and not leaving it to either the companies, as Alex rightly pointed out, who are focused on growth, who are looking at the bonuses, even though they have good intentions, of course, um, or leaving it completely to you know the powerful few politicians who who have their own agenda, and my hope is maybe a bit naively or idealistic. If we have this, if we have this democratic process, if we have this democratic oversight, checks and balances involving a lot of people, not leaving it to a few powerful few, then you can get out of this dichotomy, as you called it, and then we can get out of having either the platforms or the or the ruling elites uh, make those decisions over speech. Alex. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Maisha, if you could just weigh in on the same conundrum, but more importantly, I also just want to zoom out. And uh, so whenever you do talk about regulating big tech, the word regulation in general has a lot of negative connotation. Now, of course, even if you ask people who don't work or advocate for big tech, they would sort of argue uh, that regulation in general sort of inhibits innovation and so on and so forth. So if you could just sort of address that, where does this perception come from? Because if you sort of see the history of regulation, whether it's like uh, with, with tobacco or like oil, it's regulation is to save consumer harm. When did it, the perception become that regulatory or regulation in general inhibits innovation? Or is it, is, is it that this is also like some PR exercise that companies do? Well, yeah, it, the framing has has played an enormous role here, and uh, I'm glad you point to you know all kinds of regulations that have have helped people stay safer, you know, um, or or stay healthier. But we should also look at the rights protections that in many societies have been enabled by the law. Uh, a lot of people in in the United States uh, perceive, for example the European data protection regulation as a tool to push back against big Silicon Valley tech companies. But actually, the law binds governments as much and protects citizens from either abuse of power 
and violation of privacy rights by governments or by companies. So it is important to keep in mind that rules, when they are legitimately uh, established and you know independently uh, overseen and challengeable in a democratic process, have had a very important role in safeguarding fundamental principles in open societies. I think you're right that the phrase regulation is often a really unfortunate one. Uh, and there's there's another sort of generalization, and that is the use of the word government. Uh, let, me, let me address both. Regulation is actually, interestingly enough, it's a process that can take you to a thousand different directions, right? To regulate as such doesn't mean so much. Uh, but it has come to mean, in the context of big tech, a change of the status quo. And the big tech companies have used that very cleverly, one, by suggesting that all the fun stuff that people had was going to be taken away from them by governments, and two, that, um, that regulation was going to impact the internet, which is also a very interesting framing, because obviously, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, even if they are massively powerful, they are not the internet. And so the framing has led to uh, an association on the part of a lot of people and internet users that the things that they love most were going to be taken away from them. And I think in Europe too, this idea that regulation would stifle innovation indeed uh, landed on fertile ground because Europeans, as, as uh, Michi also pointed out to, do not have these uh, major economic successes coming from tech companies. There's a lot of innovation, there are a lot of hubs, there are a lot of startups, there's incredible knowledge and skill, uh, but to scale it to the size of the big Silicon Valley giants has not been easy for European I, companies. So sorry to cut in, but I think Americans would argue that Europe has a lot of regulation. That's the reason why a lot of tech companies... Exactly. It's an argument that we hear all the time. Uh, and, and I don't think uh, that it's that simple because there have also been regulations of a different kind, Section 230, intermediary liability exemption, uh, encryption standards, um, antitrust rules, for example, that have actually given a lot of room to um, the very big tech companies that we, that we see today. So I think we have come to a point in the broader debate about technology and uh, policy where we need to take this one level deeper. What kind of regulation are we talking about? Which kind of government actors uh, are um, at play? Because if we're not careful, the Indian government is equated with the European government, the American government is equated with, let's say, the Australian government. And you know they each play important roles, but they play different roles. Societies are in a different shape. Regulations would change things in a different direction. The uh, political ideologies are different. The risks for individuals and their rights and freedoms are different. So it's I think time to sort of get to, to a more specific uh, place. And actually when you do that, it becomes harder for the tech companies because remember how uh, Mark Zuckerberg said, oh yeah, we actually welcome regulation. And at the same time is trying to get uh, the main regulator, Lena Khan of the FTC recused. And so there's a bit of irony there and that's when the discussion gets interesting. Uh, since since you've served in the European Parliament also, do you think politicians also need to redefine and own the term regulation? Do you think there's some work that needs to be done at that end also? I think it helps to just be specific about what change is needed and that we have to appreciate regulation as a process to get there. 
But it's almost as if we would say, well, the economy has to change. Well, what does it even mean? You know, the economy is everything and nothing at the same time. So regulation can be everything and nothing at the same time. We need to really talk about what specific aspects. So, for example, stricter antitrust enforcement, more cater to the digital economy, or uh, as uh, Julian mentioned, an agency that can oversee social media companies, or rather an agency that can actually enforce non-discrimination principles or data protection standards or cybersecurity requirements. You know, there, there are a lot of options. They often involve trade-offs, which is what politics is all about. There often are no easy solutions. And it is important to get to those details. It forces companies to take more of a position. Um, and it, it helps us understand where there is a myth and a stereotype and a hype and a fear around what the regulatory process might lead to or where there is actually a tangible proposal on the table and uh, citizens can decide whether they think it makes their life better or whether they would not like to see that um, implemented. Correct. And uh, for those of us in India, and I, I'm guessing most of our viewers will be in India, could you explain it to us? Why is it that Europe has been slightly ahead of the curve when it comes to regulation and regulating big tech? Is it mostly because the laws and regulations in you define uh, consumer harm a bit broadly and not just like from a price point? Why is it that like Europe has been fairly successful or at least seen as fairly successful when it comes to this? I want to point to history as a major explainer. So uh, in, in very recent history, uh, as recently uh, that many of my former colleagues in the European Parliament still have personal experience with, uh, both communism and a little bit longer ago in history, Nazism, were a very uh, a prominent and painful, black, difficult chapter in our history uh, on the European um, continent, so to say. And uh, one of the features of these repressive authoritarian regimes was state intelligence services. And they used the available technologies uh, of the time, you know, bugging phones or having people spying on each other, partners, neighbors, um, friends, employees, employers. It was very, very uh, personal and very, very painful. Uh, and obviously the, the ultimate price that people paid for uh, being dissidents and um, being against the powers that be was uh, imprisonment or worse. So a lack of freedom, what it means when you don't have privacy, what it means when uh, the government can abuse its power is fresh in people's memory. And it means that for a lot of Europeans, the need to safeguard fundamental freedoms is vital. And it doesn't matter to them if people have to be protected from overreach by government or from overreach by tech companies. But a lot of people appreciate that the surveillance model, the data gathering model, the extremely large and personal amounts of information can easily be abused and they don't wanna see that. Now, fast forward to where we are today, obviously the business models of the big advertising platforms, the social media platforms, go in many different directions. You know, we, we're now dealing with cryptocurrencies, we're now dealing with artificial intelligence. It's not only about micro-targeting of advertisements or disinformation, even if those are two big problems. But I think the roots of the appreciation on the part of Europeans that there has to be have to be checks on power, that with big power should come big responsibilities and also countervailing powers, is really like it's under their skin. It's not like 
you know, it's, it's a lived experience coming from real fear, uh, real trauma. And uh, that has sensitized, I think, a lot of the leaders in Europe as well as the populations. It's not very controversial in Europe. Okay. okay. Uh, Alex, uh, coming back to online speech, and since you cover these platforms very closely, what role or how effective do you think, because most platforms have their own community guidelines or community standards. Facebook also has something uh, called the, uh, what's the board? I'm forgetting the board's name. The oversight uh, board. The, the oversight board. Uh, apparently they were recently looking into setting up a similar one for, for elections also. So how effective do you think these processes or systems that companies have sort of set up internally are in uh, uh, monitoring or affecting uh, online speech? Or do you think it's mostly like an online speech? Because if you look into the structures of the oversight board, it doesn't really have any veto power or uh, sort of decision-making ability as to how or what the kind of changes Facebook makes for their algorithm. So do you think it makes a change? Does it need more teeth? Or like, where do you weigh in on that issue? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're moderately effective. I wouldn't say that they're working. Um, we see time and time again how these companies have let some terrible stuff through. Um, and remember, their North Star is going to be to grow the company. At the end of the day, you know, there's a tendency to look at these social media companies as like public good corporations, but they're for-profit companies that are on the stock market that have quarterly earnings that they report to investors where they show how much they've grown revenue and how much they've grown their user base. And they will never allow content moderation to get in front of those bottom line results as long as they remain for-profit companies and newsflash, that's going to be the case for a while. So um, I think that they, you know, they've done what, what often amounts to the bare minimum, right? They've done enough uh, to sort of be able to go out in public and say we're trying, but not enough um, overall. Uh, but it, it also does get into a question of like, you know, at a certain point, these companies will end up, do we want them to be jumping in and taking down much more speech? I mean, how powerful do we want them to be? Um, I don't know if we can look to outside entities to really rein them in. Like, I don't want the government to go in and say what these, what can be said and what can't be said on these platforms. I don't want the government to, um, to be able to shape the algorithms that determine what we see. Ultimately, these are gonna be the decisions of, uh, of private companies and the market's gonna determine whether or not they survive or not. And so I, I do think that like the oversight board is a good idea. Is it is it extremely powerful? No. Uh, is it better than what we had beforehand? Yes. So I, I'll take it. I think it's good. And the oversight board is using its power in some interesting ways to press Facebook on some of the rules and regulations uh, that it has uh, and ask for clarity and ask for more transparency. That's great. So I think fa Facebook does deserve some credit for, for starting that board. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like, it doesn't seem like these platforms are, are doing, you know, are ever going to do a perfect job at handling speech on their platforms. Um, and again, nervous at the idea of having governments come in and, uh, and, regulate the way that they handle that stuff. I think common sense competition laws uh, make the most sense, like we're talking about in the United States right now, uh, because ultimately social media is a fickle, fickle uh, area to be in. You know, people, I could, you know, go through a list for the, that will take the rest of our panel of, um, and I won't do it, but of different social media companies that have 
seemed like they were the future and, and they weren't talking about vine tumblr peach i mean there's some fun ones in their path um and it's extremely difficult for companies like facebook and twitter to hold an audience and i don't think they will i think there's going to be enough challengers uh that eventually they're going to be supplanted or at least they'll take you know bits of of the businesses away and and so I, I guess like I, I conclude by just saying that this is going to be the Wild West for a long time. Uh, and if, uh, and I think that just the last point I'll make is that the, the key here is if we're worried about the stuff that's going on on social media, misinformation, disinformation, rumors, fake news, um, oftentimes that serves as, comp as material that confirms our biases about the institutions in society. And I think if we start by fixing the institutions and repairing people's health, people's faith and the health of our institutions, we're going to cause less of the, um, the initial fire that allows, you know, some of these rumors and misinformation to burn across large swaths of the population. And it does, it, it starts as many things do with upright uh, public officials um, who, who don't cave to corporations to write tax laws, who don't day trade from their congressional offices on inside information that the rest of us don't have, you know, who don't, you know, go to elite dinners uh, and, and get served by people wearing masks, you know, breaking all these, well, they don't wear them, breaking all these rules that they put in place to got it, got you know, keep the rest of us in. So it starts with the institutions and then ultimately that's the best way to heal these platforms in my opinion. We, Can I jump in? Uh, yes, yes, go ahead. Because, you know, I, I think especially all the wrongs that you just illustrated at the end there, yes, I mean, they don't help trust, right, in in um, in government or uh, elected officials. But to come back to, you know, where the market needs to uh, solve some of these problems, but also where fundamental principles are at stake. We, we talk about speech a lot in this panel, and the freedom of expression is you know, a very important right also for other rights, but certainly not the only one. So I just wanted to ask Alex, how do you feel about, for example, the non-discrimination principle? It's really hard for anyone to have a sense of whether they're discriminated against, whether groups or sensitive categories are discriminated against. It's not really something that market instruments are, are designed to solve for. Competition also won't solve it, even if fair competition is crucial. So how do you view um, the competing rights that we often see clashing in some of the decisions that uh, have to be made and are currently made by social media companies about what content stays up and what stays down. It's not only about the right to freedom of expression. No doubt. I mean, I think laws are good. Uh, and we have some really good laws on the books in, in countries all around the world that have been thought about uh, by smart people and elect, you know, put into place to you know, protect the public. So I think laws that apply to the broader society, stuff like anti-discrimination you know, laws, you know, are, are largely good. I think where you get into trouble is where you start to try to legislate what the algorithm can say or what misinformation is, and then forcing you know, these companies to take it down. Um, you know, that's where I think it, the, the market ends up doing the best work because when, when platforms do fill with this stuff, uh, they, they create a bad user experience. And if people are able to go somewhere else uh, where they're not bombarded with this stuff, uh, they, they're going to gravitate there. But so if you I, were a German, for example, then denying the Holocaust is forbidden, right? 
how, how do you see that working? Should American speech law prevail? Should German speech law prevail? Is it inappropriate uh, that the law has a, has a uh, limit on free speech for that very, very uh, narrow, also history-informed exception that denying the Holocaust is just not yeah. okay? At the end of the day, societies are going to make their own rules that are going to be appropriate for each society. I mean, I understand why that rule exists in Germany. Um, and it doesn't exist in the United States. It's all about the history and, and the context, right? And so rather than having broad rules that apply uh, across the board, uh, I do think that these platforms should be sensitive to the societies they work in. And they are. And, you know, eventually, you know, they'll stand for the values where they can. Um, but um, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I think that we should have governmental bodies, you know, make, making rules um, you know, about what happens in their country that apply everywhere, you know, versus speech rules in particular that apply to social media platforms. Correct. Uh, um, I think we're almost out of time. So I'll just squeeze in one last question. Uh, Mishi, so of course, platforms do enjoy a lot of protection against uh, user-generated contents. Of course, in US, you have uh, Section 230. In India, also within IT rules, they do have certain protection. Do you think we need to relook add those protections because a lot of countries are also trying to label uh, platforms as media publishers and hence they're liable for the content uh, that they're hosting. Uh, from a legal perspective, do you think we need to relook at those uh, protections and will that help making it uh, like safer in terms of online speech? Um so, so far, the panel agreed on a lot of things. I think uh, not just that, but there are certain things I don't agree with. But to answer your question, yes, I do think that uh, when the laws uh, which you just referred to, whether it is Section 230 about not considering as a publisher or the second part of C2, or it's Section 79 or any other place, I think at that point in time, we did not have the kind of oligopolies we have now. These companies started as something else, and now they have metamorphosized into something much bigger um, because they have acquired roles which were traditionally occupied by several different businesses, and now those are all combined. There were certain roles which were just uh, played by telecom companies. Now a video call or a phone call or a WhatsApp is much more common than using just telecom companies. Um, there is news feed. Um, uh, there is a reason that newsfeed is now being used by uh, Facebook to manipulate its own users into uh, yeah. uh, reducing the awareness about the harms uh, Facebook actually does. That's what we have learned about the new uh, this week. So I think because the companies and the business models have completely changed, those, those laws do have to evolve. Uh, what they will evolve into, it's that negotiation stage we are all in. And that's why it's important about uh, the point that Mariage makes is that uh, uh, balkanization of internet is already here. We are no longer going to be in a state where everybody is going to have the same rules and the regulations and the companies will work completely in the same manner. Um, I do not personally think that the way Indian government uh, is uh, thinking about regulations is the same way the European government thinks about it. The two countries I practice in, they don't behave similarly, as I said early on uh, at the very onset itself. Um, they will all behave differently. And in terms of, um, uh, if, if I were to say one thing um, uh, which should not happen is something which the Indian government is saying is mediation through arrests 
executives are arrested for user-generated content. And criminal liability does not exist anywhere. Even in the large democracies, which are saying we will bring different kind of content moderation, they are not saying that Chitranshu should be held liable because Mishi is saying something nonsensical on his platform or illegal, actually, not nonsensical that I always say, but uh, illegal. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think that is a place about criminalization of legitimate speech is a major problem. Now, uh, to a point you were earlier making about regular Regulation. Now, regulation is not, uh, um, uh, because there's so many PR people and there's so many lawyers on the payroll of these companies, obviously the framing and the narration of the entire narrative changes. But I will say um, antitrust is also regulation. Um, if antitrust actually worked in the United States, like the European Commission to some extent, um, we wouldn't have had all the companies either cheat all the features or just buy up all their competition. So I do not think the market is actually working. Um, and uh, to, uh, um, um, I love agreeing with everybody, but to disagree on that simple point, market is not working. Market is broken here. Because there are certain things, uh, uh, markets rules don't work the same way as we think automatically they work. That's why there are regulators. And if the antitrust rules had been in place, if FTC was actually doing its job or FCC was doing, doing its job, we wouldn't be where we are today. So um, it's not only about what speech can stay up and what speech can be taken down because those are ultimately also determined by judicial authorities, as well as the constitutional jurisprudence. As I said, um, first, and um, uh, I think Alex and Mariach already discussed about um, Germany and uh, US First Amendment. I love the US First Amendment, but that's not how the Germans think. And there is a history behind it. Coming to, coming to an example about India, which is such an interesting space, which definitely is usually ignored by the Americans and the Europeans as only as uh, something to offset China. Oh, India is just not China. But if we watch what has been happening in India from 2014, India has a lot of China envy. And India um, has been now the decline and the move towards more authoritarianism from the democratic values is pretty clear. And that's why in, when we are in that scenario, then we can't say, oh, the government authorities or a body made by the government is the right body to come and help us do this. And Chitranshu, you're more than anyone else is aware of the fact that these IT rules are trying to actually establish exactly that kind of a structure where anything which is done online and the government doesn't approve, there will be a body or an authority which will review everything. And in some societies, that will just not work. In some societies which have history, um, there is a um, court of justice for the European Union, which does a lot more in a lot of ways to protect human rights, which some, many other societies don't have uh, the benefit of. So those things will definitely matter. The balkanization is already here. The only thing which I will say is that... Um, that users should not be ignored in this entire game of the fat cats, the powerful governments and uh, the rich companies. Our right uh, to make our own internet is as important symbolically and technically, um, because I'm an Indian, as the right to make our own salt. Uh, when Gandhi did that, that all time also he was mocked, but 
free and open source software is the way people have made internet possible we have a right as users to speak to one another outside the earshot of platforms as well as the state and the government and our reading should not be surveilled by anybody and because these rights emerges the necessity that users must always have an independent seat at the table when our primary rights are being bargained for uh, over by state and platform and the the more we forget uh, the better the governments and the companies do because they forget the, because they want us to forget that we don't have those powers what will one person do what will civil society do we don't have the technical know how we don't have this we don't have that if there's no open ssl or there's no apache software right now then uh, these companies would not exist so there is a lot of people power and sometimes our elected representatives can be like uh, uh, the one who's pre present here uh, or she now she's no longer an elected representative but not every time you can trust our representatives also so that is the time when we can vote by our uh, feet or our users or what we subscribe to Correct, uh, Julian. I'll quickly give you the. Uh, I think we've two two and a half minutes left, so I'll quickly give you the last word. One is any comment, and if you would want to weigh in on the first on the uh, balkanization of governance uh, and regulation, and if you think like uh, measures like Section two thirty need really need to be re looked at, especially in the broader con uh, context of online speech. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, and, and maybe on. on just on the on the first point of the balkanization i think the debate here already shows the the different uh points of view that you can have on this issue that uh are different between the us and the eu uh, india and china and russia and african countries and brazil and so i think what what kind of came through or what i realized more listening to uh, to these brilliant points is like yeah you do need to really take context into account you can't just assume to have one rule work for all platforms in all contexts at all times. And this would, for me, mean that when, if and when you make regulations and, and you have some whatever uh, set of standards for, for companies, then you have to have the measures in there, not only to have independent seat for users at the table, like Mishi mentioned, but also the, the, the opportunity to, to change it, to evaluate it, to either have it in place that it's uh, mindful of technological changes that are, that are bound to happen or new platforms that are bound to emerge, like Alex mentioned, um, or have the chance to, to evaluate it regularly and, and, and frequently. Um, and, and to your point of, of the different, different rules and the balkanization, um, maybe I can also just point to one more thing from, from the European context. I think this is precisely what the European Union wants to avoid with the regulatory approaches that they're thinking about at the moment. So there's a couple of legislative acts in the, uh, in the European Union that are being discussed, trying to establish rules for a lot of big and small platforms. And the idea, one of the ideas behind it is to prevent the 27 member states uh, in the EU from having all the different uh, rules for a number of reasons, for you know, not stifling innovations, to go back to your first point, to having some sort of transparency and accountability rules that work across borders. Um, it, it's it's open to, to my mind. It's open whether it's it's going to work. The Commission is, is uh, the European Commission is certainly trying to work on it. The European Parliament is working on it. Um, the member states of the European Union, some of them have their own rules that they might be keen to to keep. And I think this 
to close, this would maybe be one of the ways where we can see, well, can we prevent uh, the balkanization of at least, not of the internet that's happening, as Michi said, but of the rules that we have in Europe, at least. And if, if we don't, then it would really lead to uh, a very fragmented approach. And at, uh, at, the, at the level of the nation states versus big, very financially strong, very politically powerful companies, and I think it's it's a kind of a it's a kind of an experiment uh, that we're going to see the result of in the next couple of months and years. Great, uh, uh, thanks, Julian. Thanks a lot, everyone, for doing this. I think we've discussed a, a range of topics. So I really hope it really pushes our uh, viewers to sort of dig in deeper. Uh, I would have loved to do this uh, if there was no pandemic uh, at usually when we do the physical event. So hopefully we can have the same conversation next year also, because I'm sure a lot of developments both in India and overseas will happen. I don't think this topic uh, is going anywhere. But uh, thanks again. Thanks for taking out the time, all of you. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.